This is Audio Tractor, discussions around music and creativity. I'm Alan Strickland. Paul Worley is our guest today. He's won several Grammy Awards. If you want to know all about his career, you can look him up on allmusic.com and spend several hours being enamored at his long list of achievements. Thanks for being here today. Glad to see you, Alan. I want to talk a little bit about production chops and sort of how you move through the process. So pre-production, yes or no? Yes, big yes. For those who might not understand exactly what it is, tell me your process for pre-production. You know, perfect world. You've got an artist. You've hired some session players. They've, in some cases, never met, or some of them have met, some of them haven't. You know, you're trying to meld that in, in together, and you're trying to come out at the other end of the sessions with the sense that this was all very well knit together, and everybody instinctively knew what they were going to do and, and had this mission about getting the best recording of it possible, which, of course, is not what happens most of the time. Two ways can that can happen. One is you're working with a self-contained band, and so they've done all the rehearsing at home for months and months and, you know— until they've refined how they play the songs and every nuance about it. But most of the time in my world, you don't have that. You've got people that maybe played on a different record the day before and a different one than that the day before that. In some cases, maybe the the morning session they played for somebody and then they're coming over to join you in an afternoon session. So I, I think that a great way to do it is to get the group together, maybe pay them a demo scale instead of a master scale, but go to a rehearsal hall, a place of rehearsal, not a place of recording, and set up with monitors and sit in, on a stage in a, in a circle and just go through every what if and why not and let's try in that setting and just explore everything that the artist and the, and the collective musicians would want to explore about the song and the best rendering of the song with that particular artist. It's expensive, but it's worth it because quite often the musicians have, the information they get is not only one song, but they've worked maybe for two or three days on a batch of songs, on four or five or six, and they've gotten to know the artist and the artist's personality and and what the artist wants to get done, and they've gotten to know the range of the material. So they, they, they know that there's this tempo song, and then there's a ballad, and there are these mid-tempos. They know what instruments they're going to play before they go to the recording session. So they know which guitars to have fresh strings on, which ones to leave dead strings on, which ones to, which amps to bring, which pedals. Um, that's uh, You can tell I'm a guitar player. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> but which... Uh, uh, so... All of those things are known and worked out and worked through. And I found that you can even record that rudimentary recording, just you know, a telephone out on the stage if you want, or just some very basic recording. And you have a record of that pre-production session. And so that you can get together for the recording session the next day, the next week, the next month, but you get there and there you give them the charts that they had. Go, well, here's what we played. Listen to it a couple times. And the session, it feels like a band. It feels like people that have hung out together and are trying to do more than just record whatever showed up on their desk 
that day. So the investment is in arranging, but also quite personal. Right, right. That takes care of a lot of the, the uh, creativity. What you find is then the, the, the tracks you get, you know, a hit record is a great song sung by a great singer and a sequence of musical events in time that carry you through that process of listening to that, that keep you interested in listening to the song and the singer. That's what a hit is. So if you figured all that out in a rehearsal studio, then you go to a recording studio, which is the opposite of a rehearsal studio. It's, it's, the recording studio is not a good place for communication. Everybody's at their own station, in headphones, isolated. Everybody can only communicate through you know, the talkback button. It's just chaotic, totally a chaotic place to try and arrange. So you rehearse in a rehearsal studio, you record in a recording studio, and you will have great music. So pre-production is fundamentally very different from trying to work out kinks in a recording studio. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you, I mean, I think in a recording studio, <laughs> the conversations just devolve into just nonsense. You know, you're trying to talk to one person. The other six people are all tuning and telling jokes or whatever they're doing, but you can hear. It's just maddening. It's chaos. But you also save a lot of time. In the process. I mean, yeah. pre-production, what's that old, uh, I remember an old saying, a recording studio is the most expensive rehearsal space you'll ever find. Yeah, yeah. So don't do that. Avoid that. You do less overdubs when you pre-produce in that way. If you've chosen the right band, then the job of making a hit out of that song and singer gets done. And you do less overdubs and replacing the parts that were not played right because the person didn't understand what you were trying to get them to do. So I think that in a lot of cases, it's it's very near being a wash financially. How do you know when you have the take, the take you need? <laughs> I know that's the million-dollar question, but how do you know when you've got it on tape? In a lot of cases, it's just one of the takes. It's the first take or the second take. And you go, well, there it is. This is, you know, all of that effort of rehearsing and smiling and dialing and then get it yielded what I was looking for. But after the third take, if you don't have it, you've probably lost the spark. Yeah. yeah. So if you're in a catastrophe situation, do you just say, well, we'll come back to that tomorrow? Yeah. Sometimes you go, yeah, save your charts. We'll play it again tomorrow. Or, well, let's take a lunch break. It depends on what time it is, and you come back and go after it. So you, you don't ever give up just because the time is up. You know. Well, how do you pace a session? I mean, you got the hang time in the lounge, the lunch catering. Uh, how, how do you balance that with moving a project forward? And, and I've heard some people say it's better to cater lunch in. That way no one leaves. Right. Well, you know, that's, that sounds a little drastic it sounds like oh i've got you you're mine yeah people will hang up for a free lunch free lunch man and we you know good food and 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 the fellowship is there and and uh and they can leave if they want to i mean they've got we're going to take an hour break but it's hard to leave and go somewhere and eat in an hour and get back in your mind the time people can spend across the lunch table key to a good take later in the day well, I think, you know, it's good to, to maintain the camaraderie during the day. And just everybody gets to kind of live in that bubble of not having to go out and be in the world. If, unless unless they need to. 
there's nothing fun for anybody that's like, oh, God, if I don't go pay my light bill on lunch break, I'm going to be in trouble. And you go, no. Well, you know, what are they going to worry about in the afternoon while they're playing? <laughs> I should have paid my light bill. So people are happy to, to stay together and play together. They really are. And guys and gals around here, they'll come early and they'll stay late if the music's good. And when it comes to pacing? Oh, I try to think about, you know, yeah, you always try, well, what's going to be a first, a good first song to do? And it's the hardest thing to decide. The, the answer to that is it doesn't matter. But it does matter to me because I'm the producer. Or I'm trying to think of, well, what's, what's going to be their good wake-up? And, you know, that depends on the mood the day before or maybe how hard we worked. You know, do we start the day off with a happy tempo song and then and then go into a little introspective mid and ballads and then end up the day with a funky groove. I mean, you think all those thoughts. How much overlap is there between you and the engineer as the session's moving ahead? Overlap. I mean, we're talking to each other the whole time and communicating. Smiling and dialing is just problem solving. We've got the players out on the floor. We've got the mics on. Okay, now what are we going to make this stuff really sound like? And we have to decide what's going to carry the bottom. Is it going to be the bass or is it going to be the kick drum? You know, what's going to lead the way? Is it the you know is it the tick first and, and the bass pushing behind it or is it the other way? Acoustic tones, guitar tones, keyboards, you know, everything requires scrutiny and judgment, and you got to do it fast, and you've got to do it and be unobtrusive. You got to not worry anybody while you're doing it. So how frequently do you team up and stick with one engineer or sort of choose from a variety? I've always kind of stuck with one engineer for long, long, long periods of time, just to really develop a relationship. I worked with Marshall Morgan in my early days, and I worked with uh, Ed C. for a long time in my middle days. And, and I met Clark working with Ed, Clark Slicer. I've worked with him for... 25 or 30 years. Been a long time. We really like the sounds that we make together. What's one of your favorite projects or what's something that you're really proud of? Mm. Something that's really stood the test of time? Well, the Dixie Chicks records. Uh, you know, and I like those. I like the first two Lady A records a lot. I liked uh, Martina's Evolution album a lot. My, one of my favorite record records I ever made that we ever made was uh, on an artist named Jimmy Stewart, and it was a, a sort of a turbo grass, funky, Cajun, really great album. I had a great band, and we played our butts off, and and the record never came out. And how often does that happen, where you turn out something that's really great, but for some reason it doesn't get picked up? It happens a lot. So there's a lot of great music in boxes that people will never hear. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No doubt. Always has been with everybody. How do you balance that? Uh, you, you know, you just keep trying. You know, you you keep swinging for the fences. I, I don't ever play it safe because anytime early on or anytime in my career I ever thought, okay, I'm going to try and copy what everybody's doing on the radio these days or I'm going to try and play this safe and, and cut some hits, you know, whatever that is. It's always been just mediocre you know it's me doing something mediocre because it's not coming from my heart 
you know, or my soul. How can I expect it to come from the musician's heart or soul if it's not coming from mine? You know? How do you pick songs? I mean, I'm sure you've heard some really glossy demos that sound great, but how do you see to the core and know what's a song that would sell, that would be a hit? Uh, <laughs> that's a, a lot of layers to that one. I pick songs. Uh, I think the first thing that hits me is the melody. But then there very quickly has to be something said in the song. There has to be an idea that I go, oh, my God, I, I've never heard that idea written that way. And and then there have to be the lines that you go, oh, j- listen to that line. I, oh, my God. You know, the words start to, to have weight and or make you laugh or whatever. But, you know, it, it kind of hits me in those three, in that sequence. And uh, as far as trying to pick a hit, I mean, sometimes I've got a song that I'm going to do next week that I'm pretty sure is a hit. But most of the time, you're not. You know, you just like it a lot, and you try and make a hit. But the biggest hits of my career, bar none, are songs that we weren't even supposed to record, songs that were way too cool or too left to center or right of center, songs that nobody would ever think would be a hit. And those were the songs that have defined my career. So if you didn't choose those songs, who did? Well, I chose the songs. I was part of the or part of the group. But what you you know your songs like "Run to You" on Lady A, uh, you know, or even uh, "Need You Now" were songs that were like, "Whoa, those are way outside." And even the group, you know, who wrote the songs, were going, "Oh, nobody's going. That's just going to go over everybody's heads." You know, maybe we should we shouldn't do that. We need to cut something more commercial. And and yet we'd all go, "But God, it's so good." So this is the magic of pre-production. You know, I'm able to say, let's take that to the rehearsal. Let's rehearse the song with the band. We'll know if it's working or not. We'll know. And in every case, those songs were the the songs that we would play before. <laughs> I'd go, hey, let's take a break. We were working on a song. They go, well, can we play Run to You one more time before we take a break? You go, I'm on to something. You know, the player, we all collectively know that this is a great song and great arrangement of it. We're playing it right now. So we go in the studio armed with that, and the music comes out great. And those songs, Wide Open Spaces is, is another one of those that you turn the album in, and you know, you're talking to the promotion people and the marketing people, and and they're going, Oh, God, Wide Open Spaces is so good. It's, uh, it's my favorite song on the album. And I go, oh, yeah, it's going to be, when that song comes out as a single, that's going to just blow the world up. And and that person that I was talking to said, that's not going to be a single. There's no way that's going to be a single. And I said, oh, it's going to be a single. And when it is a single, it's going to be the biggest single you'll ever work, <laughs> I said. And then I, then I looked over and I said, did I just say that? You know, you never know. But sure enough. Wide Open Spaces was just blew the whole world up. And so did Run To You, and so did Need You Now. So as the producer, do you choose the singles? No. No, I have to. That's where serendipity, and that's where the craft of sequencing an album and turning them in. You got to fool the gatekeepers into not being afraid to put something out that's just radically different. You know, and when you do, you got a shot at having not just a hit, but a big hit. 
So who are the gatekeepers in this context? Is that A&R? Sometimes, but more often uh, people involved in radio promotion, uh, marketing, those kinds of things. And they tend to be more reactive to what the marketplace is doing. And, of course, what we're trying to do is define what the marketplace is going to do. I mean, that's our hope. In the 90s, you turned out some pretty varied production styles. You had uh, Pam Tillis with maybe it was Memphis, which is well-produced, well, still a little bit gritty. Uh, Sarah Evans' Niagara Falls was huge. I think that was 96 inputs on the console, while Suds in the Bucket was super simple. How do you decide on density for a song? I've got the song. I've got the band. I've, I've got you know some kind of idea about what's going to happen. But then, then the song dictates that. And so what happens is quite often just as much of a mystery to me as it is to anybody else. And I love that. I love that. I don't like to have a preconceived notion of what a record's going to sound like. One of the things we talked about is rehearsing in pre-production, and which brings me to, to wonder, is there a trend away from musicians playing together on tracking dates and, you know, to people more alone in their basement in the laptop or heavily programmed stuff? I mean, how, how do you feel about that? Well, there is a prevalence now of individual playing being layered on. Sometimes artists are adding to records, you know, from thousands of miles away and emailing it back and... Is collaboration missing in that? Oh, I mean, yeah. is it a lonely experience with bad results? Or no? Well, no. It's no. I think if you listen to music, it's not always bad results. A lot of times, it's really good results. But to me, it's really good results when you're able to create the illusion that the players played at the same time. That there was some kind of connection between the players, and that's an illusion because it didn't happen that way. So it matters to me. I think a lot of modern music, it doesn't seem to matter to people. I'm just from an era that it really matters to me that that there's this human connection to everything. And, and there's this musical conversation happening between real people in real time. That's just me, though. Who is your audience or who do you think hmm. will will listen to your records and want them? I don't know. At the moment. I'm not the hot thing going on in country music or really any any format. So I'm I'm back out in the desert and I've been here before, you know. I've been making records for 40 years. Well, is this an opportunity for you to take more risks? Well, yes, it's an opportunity to definitely not play it safe. Is is to really take more risks. It's an opportunity for me to rethink, retool, invite doubt self-doubt, the old, uh, what I call the old I suck tape to to just wear me out. Go, okay, bring me bring me the best you got, you know. And uh, So in these times you let your internal negative dialogue oh, just yeah. work you over? Well, yeah, why not? I mean, it's going to anyway. You're not going to stop it, right? <laughs> so, you know, it's like, okay, well, bring it. I, I'm, I've been, you know, the first couple of cycles, it used to freak me out, and I'd go, oh, God, I'm never going to make a record again. This I'm over. And I've learned over the years that it's just a natural part of a producer's cycle to be in sync with and out of sync with what's happening musically, culturally in in the world that he's in. It's like, oh, hey, well, I can't really do anything about that except hang on and, 
you know, I've tried the, the oh, I'm going to chase that. Well, if you're chasing something that's already on, on the radio, you, that train has already left the station. I mean, that's a race you're not going to win. So why run that? So just go back to your basics. Go back to, to what you know from the musicianship, from your heart, from your soul, and, you know, it'll come back around to you. It, it, it usually does. So you have dry spells and then something yeah. just falls out of the sky for you? Absolutely. That's about the best you can hope for. That That's an incredible answer, and I really appreciate your vulnerability in just saying that. Yeah. It strikes me that you have a real personal connection to making music, and you're not afraid to be who you are. Well, I've been through that, you know, been there, done that the fear thing and the who am I and the blah, 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 you know. At the end of the day, you're just better off weathering the storm. This may be an odd question, but what significance do your Grammy Awards have to you? I know some people go, look at look at what I've done, and other people put them in a box under the desk like, yeah, that, that was then. Yeah, mine are, <laughs> mine are in a warehouse somewhere uh, on Trousdale Lane. So you don't eat breakfast with them? Uh, no. <laughs> they're, they're, you know, I was thinking about them the other day. I'm thinking, I'm getting a little older. I ought to get those things out just just to make sure that my kids or grandkids can find them. And I lost one of my Diamond Awards. It's somewhere – I think it's somewhere in the in the warehouse, but it may not be. But I'm proud of them. I'm proud to have, have achieved those things. I never thought I would, Ever. You know, that was the impossible dream that I dreamed when I was a young person. I don't ever know what, what's going to be a Grammy or not, because there's a lot involved. And I mean, the music's got to have turned out really great, and people have got to liked it a lot. And it's got to have gotten the attention of the organization. It's got to win the votes that particular year, and that's dependent upon what else in all the other formats is going on, because it all affects everything. So when you win one, it's the most gratifying thing in the world because it really represents the amount of time you've tried on everything else you've ever done. Everything's connected musically inside of me. And if I were to leave one thing out, would, would the other would the next thing have happened? You know, I don't know. Does winning a Grammy feel like it puts more pressure on you for what's next? Yeah. Yeah, for sure, especially the first time. It really does. It freaks you out. You think, oh, my God. And then, you know, if it happens again, it just is like, well, good old, there's old lady luck. Thank God for her, you know, because I try just as hard. I, I work harder on the ones that don't win than I do on the ones that do, really. Well, that's some fantastic insight. Mm -hmm. Paul Worley, our guest today, thank you very much. I appreciate your vulnerability. Thanks, Alan. <laughs> You've been listening to Audio Tractor, discussions around music and creativity. Thanks to Biff Watson for the use of his studio, Clark Slicer for technical expertise, Kevin Harper for our musical signature, and Paul Eckberg for providing the editing suite. Your questions and comments are welcome. Send them to audiotractor at outlook.com. I'm Alan Strickland. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.